0: Hey, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. You know, friends, family, you know, casual people who are just, like, going across iTunes right now. Um, It's me, Matt Rebar. I wrote this book in 2016. I've been writing books all my life, and, you know, just for fun. And finally, I was like, well, what's a way to share my work but, you know – make it cool or make it adaptable because you know people don't really read too much these days and so i was like wait a minute i'll make an audiobook even better yet i'll kind of make, like a podcast audiobook so here we are um this story like a lot of my stories kind of gets uh, sent to me in visions so it's like little stuff here and there i don't want to spoil anything from the book but i got little visions together and i sat down and this was between uh, yeah fall 2016 and i was really interested in this idea of like knowing someone how do you fully know someone and And kind of playing off of that imagery so um i hope you enjoyed the book and just another thing to note um you know i'm kind of a bubbly guy normally i'm very happy go lucky people are like yay um the voice of the character and of the characters do not represent me it is a fictional story uh, so you know, don't like, I know my mom? When I first showed her this, she's like, "Oh my God!" Like it's just, I just think of you, and I'm like, "No, no, no! Don't think of me at all." This is like, think of me oh, for creating this story, but like besides that, like I am not represented in the story at all. So just want to put that out there too. This is a work of fiction. So and real quick too, this is gonna be a ten-part series, and once the final part is up, I will be sharing the book, uh, the the actual text. So if you wanted to look at the text or share that with people who don't listen to podcasts, they want a book, here's the book version, a.k.a. the podcast in a book. Thank you for tuning in, and here's episode one. This is episode one of the audiobook-slash-podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter Zero, Birthright. The mind is beautiful, but I am not. There isn't anything beautiful about me except for my physicality, short brown hair which made me type army, muscular features, and a symmetric face. But behind those features is a backstory which is far from picture perfect, alongside personal desires which err on the side of the demonic. My belief in my inner ugliness does not stem from some deep-seated hatred or some self-esteem problem which counselors and therapists ordinarily tackle in an effort to calm the contemporary fragile glass of the human ego. I know what I am, and I live to that order. I knew what I was at the very young age of four. Most four-year-olds play with building blocks, trucks, dolls, and games designed to keep their innocence intact. Most four-year-olds have yet to get past the basic choreography of language, but by four, I had realized what emotion was in the world around me, yet surprisingly found that I didn't relate to those emotions. The preschool teacher would cancel recess, and I'd be the only kid who didn't care about it. When we went to the petting zoo, my classmates were in love with the furry, harmless creatures, but all I did was stare at the beasts, contemplating how best to kill them if ever the chance or scenario arise i wasn't as if purely void of emotion for example i could still sense the eagerness of a surprise trip to the ice cream store but that was when i was four surprise ice cream trips do not exist for this 27 year old adult male this behavior this lack of emotion continued through early school and middle school None of it seemed appealing. Pizza Day Fridays, clicks, drama, crushes, which barely escalated, extracurriculars and additional demands, pep rallies, trips to the mall with friends. The students around me lived for the routine, becoming salmon who swim upstream in the river of youth. Why do they stick together? Pleasure? Fear? A natural inclination to group onto one another like a herd? I could still relate to some of the kids. I remember the one boy, Frank, who lived with his abusive father. Frank exhibited rage and pain, two things I was still kind of virginal to when it came to exhibiting. Frank was my drug. I would siphon and waft his anger like some of the older kids did with cigarettes. But with all the absorbing I did, I never could imitate or position myself in the boys' shoes. I wasn't surprised later in life that Frank had shot his father. Perhaps that's why we connected more so than any others in my school. We handled emotions on a polar scale, but our desires ran in the same direction. It was finally through high school where I truly did not relate to the adolescence around me. Young men and women became increasingly eager and anxious as puberty struck them like a Russian wench in the throw of a St. Petersburg brothel. At first, it was the casual hand placed on the shoulder. Then it was making out, the boob grab, the oral, the sex. I had sex in high school, the good old Martha. Martha liked me, but there was no way I was going to be able to reflect her sentiments. Sex felt like work, work I didn't want to do. Everything was optional. The parties, the dances, the after-school hangouts, and the boring class. But I waited like an animal in hiding. While my peers danced around the oasis, I waited till the time could come for me to truly live. Early on, I formulated upon graduating high school with my eyes on college. I'd have to wait through four years of college as well, but I was used to waiting. After all, I'd been waiting since I had been four years old. Fortunately for me, I was not the sociopath who acted out on his behavior. Although, maybe sociopath isn't the PC term people like to use these days, but I'll use it just to save time. I did not provoke the culture I inhibited. I harbored patients unlike some of the others. You'd hear stories about serial killers who were reported killing neighborhood pets and forest animals at young ages. People who knew these serial killers would say canned responses such as, I can't believe he was capable of such behavior. Those interviewed character witnesses saw the world at a second dimensional glance. They couldn't connect the dots in front of them. Whether or not they could or perhaps didn't want to, that's a different tale. There were times where the desire almost exploded out of me. I wanted to be capable of the behavior serial killers were admonished for. But I didn't leave my house and enter the alleyways and corners of suburbia to commit deviance in an act of self-exploration. My good boy persona stayed at home. I was a bona fide actor whose role fit me like a perfect glove. But plastic gloves aren't designed to last too long. Besides, if I had got caught killing animals or torturing my schoolmates, I'd be done for. I had to think of the long game. I was actually anxious about that long game, though, mostly because the future I wanted didn't appear to coexist with society and what others expected from me. But luckily, I graduated at the top of the criminal behavior department at a top school, which I'll admit, because no doubt it would look terrible to set college that I'm an alumni of. I had been patient and had crafted a way for me to legally get away with my deepest desires. I instantaneously got a job with the government, a lowly member of the spinning grand cycle. Originally, I was that lowly agent who did the bitch work, but quickly enough, the right people saw me. Yes, the federal government hires scumbags such as I, the sociopath who doesn't care about anything or anyone. Granted, a true sociopath, and maybe psychopath too, knows how to come across like a human being. There is some kind of unspoken notice between psychopaths and sociopaths. Together, we share a sixth sense where we can smell each other pretty quickly on. The top men and women in my agency are all killers. Some just prefer ordering death than performing it. It didn't take long to transcend my regular peers. I finally got to the level where my future melded with the future expected of me. I hunted, killed, studied, gathered, and survived for the federal government. It was a job which pinpointed my inner desires, a job where I finally got to exercise my own personal motto of surviving or dying. If I could truly feel the full effect of happiness, I'm sure I'd express that emotion. Thank God you're free, Mercer. My boss, Williams, muttered as we moved through the hallways of the federal facility, which also will go unnamed. There was a lot of confidential material to which I abided to. Nobody outside of my agency knew where exactly I worked or what I did. In fact, I was really only known as a menace to the people who wanted a menace working for them. Of course, sir. I nodded as we continued moving past labs and offices. Williams was an atypical high member of the agency. He had spent his younger years being in my position before escalating to the management and administrative aspect. We both had a common bond for committing acts deemed criminal, yet not having to deal with the fallout of trouble regarding those acts. Williams' silver hair and mustache marked his age, and outside of his work, he had a wife, which he put in time for. I'm not sure if Williams loved his wife. I wonder if she was a toy to make Williams appear normal. Or maybe after years of being a menace, Williams enjoyed the soft antithesis of a doubting spouse. Sidney Isidore Mercer. It's quite a powerful name for an agent. But like all people, we don't choose our name. Most individuals preferred Mercer to Sidney. Mercer was my widely accepted alias when it came to staff admissions. Mercer seemed serious and to the point, while Sidney seemed fun. I didn't want to come across as fun, but my first name came in handy for situations where I wanted to create friends or put another at ease. Sydney lowered walls while Mercer raised walls. Not to brag, but my agent record is impressive. I'm extremely manipulative and patient, the type of hunter which would go hungry for days before successfully and perfectly obtaining his catch. Fellow sociopaths and psychopaths get caught through the evidence they create a major nail for serial killers and kin was stupid passion. The dumb ones got locked up and killed, while the smart ones worked through the boundaries. This mission is quite different, William sighed as we finally arrived at an elevator. Normally I'd have you go through some foreign country, some podone crack-ass corner of the country, but today I'm sending you to basically a different world. I'm not going to lie, Mercer. This isn't going to be like anything you've ever seen. Williams was right. I'd been a spy, an assassin, researcher, killer, terrorist, and many descriptors you could think of for over 52 countries and officially over 400 towns and cities in the States. I'd moved like I was part of a book tour, tackling case after case as I crossed the country and the globe. I was smart and went undetected, settling and creating chaos like an angel of death. I had one of the cleanest records on staff, something I was quite proud of considering the office had been behind some of the most controversial and widely known disasters. Think of some of the shit that's happened in this country and in the world, and I bet a good chunk of that came from my colleagues and I. What do you mean a different world? I questioned. Are you sending me to space or under the ocean? No, I wish I was, Mercer. William sighed like this decision to call upon me had been one of the toughest things he had to do in his career. It's a bit different than that. What do you know about the human mind? I know my mind isn't the typical human mind. Of course it's not. You work here, Williams smiled. But think more so of the brain, I suppose. It's a very tough organ, capable of everything within the body. Technically, death is proclaimed with the stoppage of the heart and the death of the brain. The brain controls everything. It remembers everything. It provides reason where there is none. Good. It's like you passed human biology. Williams congratulated as we entered the elevator. I'm sure you could give me... "'Pretty okay explanations of consciousness, unconsciousness, and subconsciousness.' "'Of course!' I nodded. "'Consciousness is practically awareness. You're thinking. "'Unconsciousness is when someone is out, basically. "'They're not thinking, I guess. "'And the subconsciousness is this layer underneath consciousness, "'but it's basically untapped. "'It's found by most that a large portion of our brain isn't working at once.' "'Williams mused as the elevator descended into the hell of the building.' that even the most complex of tasks only take a small chunk of brain power. So what is the rest of the brain doing? What happens in the subconscious? What is the exact relationship between the unconscious and the subconscious? Well, these are questions that some of our research and development teams are working on. Research and development, I chuckled. Glad to know they're working hard. You'd be surprised some of the inventions they managed to create. Williams told me in a way that contradicted my assumption over R&D. I think you'd be interested in their new machine, especially because you're gonna be one of their early demos. A demo, I asked. For what? Williams and I stopped in front of a warehouse-looking door which was pure steel. The number four was painted so lusciously upon the metal wall as if we had hired an art student for the design. Williams swiped his access card and the warehouse door opened to reveal the space inside. Immediately, I was visually overcome by the machines and might in front of us. Scientists milled around the machines while staring at the center of the room, which was taken up by a comatose larger black man, perhaps in his mid-forties. His head was covered by a metallic dome, while a bunch of wire shot out of his body and connected to the machines. Large screens were placed on the walls, but all of them were flickered to static, while there was a second chair, which sat next to the black man. It did not take too much deductive reasoning to understand I would most likely soon be in that second chair. "'What the fuck is all of this?' I muttered, but it was not Williams who answered me, but a scrawny scientist. "'Ella, are you Agent Mass?' the scientist asked, his Eastern European accent as thick as the layer of goop on his potentially fake hair. "'I am. Are you going to answer my question, then?' "'Of course.' The scientist bowed slightly as I watched him. "'I am Badalov.' and I am the head of this project. The black man in the middle there is Clark King. He's been in a coma for upwards of eight months, but he has been kept alive mainly because he has some very important information. Information. I turned to Williams for this one. Clark King worked in the depths of some of the government's top code breakers, hackers, and technologists. Williams explained, Clark King is the creator and developer of Lavender. What is Lavender? Lavender is above your clearance, Williams explained. Fuck, it's above my own clearance, but apparently Lavender's unfinished and the only chance to finish Lavender is probably by getting the information from Clark King himself, and that's where Bottleoff comes in. We have designed the machine that allows a human being to be mentally transported into the mind of another, Bottleoff summarized. Basically, that is the foundation. We don't really have time, nor the patience, to explain how it all works, but you will be transported into the subconscious of Mr. King in efforts to find out about Lavender and potentially wake him up. How will I be transported into the brain? I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but I guess it was hard to picture this technology. Imagine the subconscious like a world. Badalov was really stripping it down to the wires for me. Each subconscious is different. Because everyone has different experiences, hopes, dreams, fears, desires, tastes. But the subconscious, which goes highly unused and unnoticed, is the true core of the brain. You will visit the subconscious like a passenger in a series of almost dreamlike states. You will get to see Clark King's life in a way you will get to understand him. don't know what exists in Clark King's experiences, but in his subconscious, the hope is you can find out how to complete Lavender or how to wake up Clark King. But I don't know what Lavender is, and how am I supposed to wake up Clark King? He's been in a post-stroke coma for months. Clark King himself will exist within the subconscious, bar muttered. We've done experiments and trials with this equipment. We will be watching your progress on the screens up on these walls. We will be able to hear you and your surroundings as well Sadly, there is not a way to communicate with you That technology is yet to be developed But even if we could communicate with you We do not know anything of the subconscious of Clark King But there are some things we know Will most likely translate over to your experience Your body remains here while your mind is at play Within the subconscious of Clark King But Olaf promised like he was telling someone he loved How much he loved them But if you succumb inside the mind of Clark King, you yourself will be killed. You cannot die within his mind. Otherwise, your mind dies in real life. How do you know this? I asked. We have experienced some loss on this project. Badalov seemed to look down to the floor instead of staring me into the eyes. I had no problem steering into someone, a feature which separates me from regular people. We visited many minds with agents and casual scientists. Butlove paused and switched subjects. We have created a bag which will be at your disposal within the subconscious. Butlove snapped his hands and his assistants approached, each armed with a different gadget of sorts. This first gadget is basically an escape button. I looked at the glass-encased button, which looked simple enough for what I imagined was quite the impossible task. When pressed, you'll immediately be sent back to your body. It usually takes two seconds or so for you to escape from the subconscious if you were to press that button. We've had close encounters on both sides of that two seconds. We imagine that if you were to hold onto the core of Clark King, you might be able to draw to his conscious awake. That would be most optimal. If we can bring Clark King to life, then no doubt Lavender can be completed. The second gadget is a gun, Badalov said, as I indeed looked at the futuristic-appearing gun. The only difference is that you don't need bullets. You just need to believe in the ammo. Believe in the ammo. I was not happy with the vagueness, and Badalov quickly covered his bases you will all find in the subconscious that your imagination and sense of reality can be warped, battle offside. Clark King is controlled and contorted, his entire subconscious to some degree. Although, granted, certain monsters and anti-paradises have grown out of his control. You yourself will be able to contort and control the world around you, but granted, this is to an extent. This gun is worthless in real life, but... In the subconscious, it is basically a self-amount gun. Although be careful, you can run out of the will to contort and create bullets. You basically have a meter of energy at odd times. Try not to extend yourself too much. This third piece of gear is a map, Clark King explained, as he made me look at the third piece of equipment. Like its brethren, it looked futuristic. It appeared as a blank scroll. I thought we couldn't map the world of Clark King. We can't, Bottle-Off countered. But this map will update itself as you move. It'll act as a guide, and you can use it to decipher where you've been and what you'll see. Like the gun and the emergency button, the map has no practical use in the real world, but in the subconscious, these three pieces are very important. Is this like a video game? I questioned as I looked at the gear being placed in the bag that was strapped onto my back. None of this seems real. What is perceived as real? will only be real in its consequences, scientist Batalov whispered while Williams watched on. Williams had been silent for this whole interaction, but I turned to him. So this seems dangerous, I admitted, as the scientists whirled to life around me. Machines whizzed and hummed as I came to life in order for my brain to create a miniature version of me which danced around in the subconsciousness of Clark King. None of it made sense. But I supposed... None of it would make sense, until I was back in the safety of the world I knew. For a sociopath who didn't relate to emotions, I, for once, felt a pit of unease. I had mastered the world at a young age and had not been threatened or scared since, but Clark King's subconscious was a monster I had no knowledge of. If I knew something, my body would be at ease, but I could not help but feel adrenaline spike through my body, the hair standing on my coarse skin and my pupils dilating and retracting like ocean tide. You are one of the few agents that I believe can do this. Williams muttered to me as we walked over to the second chair. Immediately, scientists began grabbing my skin and poking me with needles. My head was domed with the same kind of construction which Clark King had on. King breathed in and out, although that was all that was visible in terms of his living status. Go in there. Find out about Lavender and, if possible, awaken King. Williams made this seem like it was another mission, but this wasn't... Another mission. Nothing more needed to be said, I supposed. Badalov watched as his team wired me up like I was some kind of beast to be tranquilized. I tried to steady my mind as Williams watched on with pure neutrality. I could smell worry coming off of Williams, but... He was trying his best to show that everything was going to be all right, but would it? We prepared to slip you under, Badalov explained to me as we stared into each other. We will be watching and listening, okay? They'll be with you in this. He sounded like parents telling their children about a difficult decision, such as putting them into surgery or preparing to move them across the country. It was all bullshit, designed to smell like perfume. Normal kids could be fooled after being doused in oils, but for me, I didn't smell anything. I only saw the haze. I saw the bullshit. But then, after Badalov began the machines, I didn't see anything again until. Chapter Negative One Early Remembrance I awoke with my body strewn on the ground. I was pressed deep against the foliage of what felt like prickling thorns. As I sat up, I looked down to realize that the ground was filled with decayed brown and dead pine needles, intertwined with semi-living pine needles which had left their captors for the afterlife. I looked up to see the bright vision of the forest which surrounded me. I was on the ground in the middle of a large pine-based forest, I looked, staring at each of the trees to absorb them. Each of the pine trees was a variation of a neon bright color, which overwhelmed my vision. Greens, yellow, oranges, reds, pink, purples, blues, all bright and explosive. The entire pines were colored as such, although the trunks remained their brown hue. I stood up and continued moving through my surroundings. In all directions were their trees, while up above featured no blue sky, but some kind of mid-purple, multi-hued galaxy complexion. I was immediately thrown for a loop. Nothing like this existed on Earth. I felt out of my comfort zone, although I suppose my bag and I would have to continue forward. The first thing I remember was color. I stopped walking among the eye-blinding and thick conifer trees. Granted, there was a pit of wind which ripped through the Christmas tree like bundles. The sky seemed to pulsate too, the bruised purple squelching without sound. There was nothing to explain where the voice had come from. As quickly as the voice had arrived within the forest, it had left. The vocals were brusque, evidently male, and sounded like they belonged to someone who had experienced much in his life. I could not detect anything more than that singular sentence. Part of me wondered if it was Badalov or any of the scientists, but they had said they were unable to communicate, although no doubt they were witnessing this forest in the sky, just as speechless and overran as I was. Badalov, I whispered, wondering if truly they were hearing what I was saying and I wasn't just speaking to myself in the subconsciousness of Clark King. Did you hear that voice just like I did, or did the voice communicate with me alone? I just heard a singular voice which muttered, the first thing I remember was color. I didn't know who said it, but now I'm thinking it might be Clark King, but there's not a human in sight. Do you think he's truly speaking with me? Or maybe his thoughts about his subconscious are echoing out just for me? Fuck. I wish I was able to communicate back to you guys. There was no response, as expected, so I continued forward. I came across a sign which seemed random, considering there didn't seem to be anything man-made within the forest so far. The sign was simple, and seemed randomly placed with no meaning. The board of wood was seared with the following. Neon forest. The beginnings of life. Huh. I whispered out loud, knowing full well I would be talking out loud to communicate with Battleoff for this upcoming trip. The beginnings of life. It kind of goes with the quote, the first thing I remember was color. Do you suppose this forest has something to do with his youth? Without waiting for a response, I continued. The neon lime trees had the color of a limeade slushy. The neon orange trees the color of a jersey tan. The neon pink trees the colors of the features of a Japanese anime female character. The neon yellow trees the color of fake gold. The neon purple trees the color of a prune juice product logo, the neon red trees the color of a Chinese paper lantern, and the neon blue trees the color of voltage. They repeated in random order, with different variants within each hue. I wondered more about their existence and thought more about the voice which had spoken through the trees. There was suddenly a clearing, and I had arrived in the banks of a small pond, not yet the size of a lake. The pond was perhaps a thousand feet long and wide, perfect circle presented in front of my eyes. The pond was still and unmoving. I approached with caution, not sure of the water's intent. I finally looked over and saw my own reflection. The water was like glass, showing a slightly saturated view of myself, some of the treetops, and the purple nebula of a sky above. For some reason, I was drawn to the water. The crystalline water exploded open to reveal some kind of creature, which immediately grabbed me by the shoulders. I was paralyzed as I studied the rows of teeth and the long, stringy blue hair that looked like Play-Doh. The creature's eyes were covered over the skin, like tent flaps that had yet to be unzipped to form windows. Its nose was not made out of cartilage like humans, although its bony hands were definitely human-made. There were gills slit right into the creature's neck while its chest was shapeless and disfigured. I would immediately heaved myself backwards out of its grip and back into the forest. The creature now fully came out of the water to reveal its lower body. The monster's legs were humanoid as well, but its feet were webbed for no doubt movement within the pond. I assumed the creature was mostly waterbound based on its design, but the animal could surprisingly walk upright. The creature stared at me with its non-visible eyes and opened its jaw even wider to the point where a human would have to crack and dislocate its jaw to mimic the beast in front of me. With a quick movement The beast moved forward I ducked to the left As the creature stopped Its original course And rebounded I looked to my surroundings And found a small branch Which I picked up And immediately chucked at the beast in front of me The branch hit the animal In the face Knocking it to the ground It cried out in soft pain Although it regained itself Soon enough And climbed after me I grabbed another branch, this time a little thicker. With dead-on accuracy, I lobbed the branch like a softball and struck in the beast's chest. The monster backed up and let off a soft roar. The beast's roar sounded like a dinosaur screaming over a human track. Its chorus was unhuman and bothering to the ears, What was interesting was the disjointed species which made up the beast. It seemed comprised of different animals, both alive and mythical, compiled in a way that made it seem realistic, but all at the same time unique to one's individual fantasy. The beast struck forward, and the only weapons I had at my disposal were my fists. I avoided the beast's mouth and instead punched the beast straight in the upper chest. My fist felt like it was hitting a large Easter ham. Although the beast was not ready for my rage, my second fist landed in upper succession, totally pushing back the creature altogether. But my fists were not going to be the end of this match, just a mere intermission between initial reaction and the finale. The beast was now wary, clearly having marked my fists as problems to be dealt with. The beast craned its neck as if stretching, before lowering its head more. This was akin to a boxer who would make the impact zone tighter by drawing their body more compact. Basically, this bitch of a creature wanted me to punch its chest so that my fist would be closer to its jaw. But this creature clearly didn't realize it was up against a smarter version of itself. I scooted back as the creature snapped forward, using its jaw as the primary offense. That technique reminded me of a darting snake. and would be something I need to be on the watch for. I could take a punch, but I could not take the crunch of his jaw. I circled the beast all within feet of the pond. No wonder the pond had been so still. To avoid making the surface move, no doubt brought out prey to the pond edge. But I hadn't seen a single creature in this forest. Perhaps I was the only thing alive in this forest besides my newfound foe. Not knowing how to deliver my next punch, I thought of alternatives. That's when it dawned on me that I had been holding onto a gun this entire time. Without turning my back or creating an opening, I opened my back and pulled out the gun that had traveled with me to the other side. I didn't know how it had happened, but perhaps what was on my body also came with me to the subconscious, but I could find that another time. This beast was getting more crafty As time continued But the thing was I didn't know how to work this gun Bottle-off had explained that I had to Create the bullets Whatever that was. I continued watching out for the snapping jaws of the beast And I tried imagining bullets within the gun But the gun remained unloaded And seemingly a joke I decided I should have practiced before actually needing this damn thing I wondered if while watching me, Bottle of williams and the scientists were sweating bullets. I hadn't even been inside the mind of Clark King for a hot second before I ended up in a battle with something that wanted to kill me. While wow, this seemed like a crazy tripped out video game dream with graphics, if I were to die, I was going to actually die. Perhaps that motivation was the reason why suddenly I felt the gun add weight. Shit, those don't have to be bullets, I grinned at myself and those watching me. I pointed the gun to the unsuspecting creature and fired three bullets. All three ended up in the chest, whose blood splattered outward and onto the dead pine needles. I watched as the creature shrieked. The bright raspberry-colored release was smeared like runaway lipstick over the creature. The blue Play-Doh hair whipped in a frenzy as the creature bolted me. The reflective pool became ruined once more as the creature dived under the water. Slowly, the pool became still, and I looked on from a distance, not wanting to encounter another fight so soon. With a bated breath, I circled the pond, continued moving in the same direction I had since I stood up. This time, as I moved through the neon forest, I heard a reprise of the same voice. Interestingly enough, I was not the first child to be born to my parents. Here in the early days and before my existence lies my dear sister. She was nothing more than a miscarriage, although quite a memory to my dear family. We value her just like any other person in the family, and here she exists within the color. Rest in peace, Melody. Chapter Negative 2, Floating Oxymoron. Initially, there didn't seem to be a way to leave the forest, but I soon arrived at the edge of the forest, which was on a cliff's edge. But I suppose I'm not being clear enough on the detail. On Earth, everything is bound to the control of gravity. But what was different in the subconscious world was that there appeared to be no gravity, keeping everything on the same plane. Slabs of rock and earth appeared like islands in the sea of nebula. Some faced me. Some were way below the slab of rock I was on. Some were above me. Think of any possible direction, and there existed little landforms like planets. Confusing, right? From here, I could see what looked to be the underbelly of a rock slab, which meant I had no clue what was on the other side of the rock. To the far left of my vision, I could see some kind of track in what appeared to be a shining water-filled land. In the distance, I thought I could see a jungle of some kind, perhaps even the haze of what could be a city. To my far right, I saw another huge slab, which looked dark and grisly. In the far distance, I could see an ocean, which looked more like a sheet of glass. The ocean had no depth, but connected the slab of desert, which appeared to potentially be civilization. All of this occurred within the purple blobs of the skylight, which cast down a soft glow. I suppose the forest trees themselves were the reason why it seemed darker within the neon forest upon my immediate horizon was a meteor belt all this infinite space so many different places appeared in my vision and i wondered where among them i could find information on lavender as well as clark king granted all of this was supposed to belong to clark king i was overcome with not knowing where to start first but i trudged forward and took the route to the right i thought about what the voice potentially of clark king had mentioned regarding melody Was it safe to assume that the creature I had fought was an incarnation or imagination of Clark's older sister who had died via miscarriage? But why was she not human? Was there significance within the blue hair which looked like clay or the metamorphosis of webbed features between her limbs and the folds of her skin over the eyes? And why did her chest look compact and genderless like a robotic body piece? And perhaps the most intriguing question yet, did Clark King choose this location and the description of Melody or had these details manifest from Clark King's own mind conflicted with his subconscious vision? If the latter, that almost proved that Clark King's identity and his own self-vision conflicted with what his subconscious thought of him. It was almost like there were two different people or at least two mirrors. Did Clark King know about Melody? His voice seemed like he knew. Perhaps he would visited Melody in that pond and had seen the horror that his subconscious had made of her. Perhaps Clark wasn't aware that deep in the neon forest a subhuman awaited anyone who dared come upon its pond. Maybe the voice I was hearing was just his subconscious narrating the world for me. It was easy to jump into a rabbit hole. It was harder trying to ignore the multitudes of questions I was facing. I felt like I had been walking all day when I finally came upon something else besides the forest in my line of immediate walkable sight. In the distance, I could now see what I suppose was north of the neon forest, but then again, directions seemed pointless in this dimension. I suppose if anything, I should just readjust my descriptors. I could still see the desert and the large rock upon it which stood in the far distance. The ocean met with the desert's edge and headed left. Above the desert was another rock, and although I didn't know it was up on that rock, I assumed it was some large amount of water, perhaps a lake. I guessed a lake because there was a large waterfall, which poured down into a small receptacle, which was located at one of the tips of the desert plate. The potential lake was connected with a thin bridge which slid down into a small rock which contained a small bustling village. From here, the village looked like some European Disney-themed place with large windows, simplistic colors and an overall happy-go-lucky appearance. The village was tightly clustered together, no doubt protecting itself from the potential horrors of melody or whatever else lay in the subconscious. It seemed to capture youthful innocence which went along with the subconscious's narration. Between the neon forest and the village were small rocks which floated softly. I suppose they were some natural peering bridge between the forest and this town. What really caught my eye was a kid who was wheeling around the rocks with his wheelchair. The kid would zoom across the atrocities before jumping into the air, wheelchair and all. He'd collide down onto a second rock, grab his gearings and prepare for another launch. I watched a few times before I called out to the kid. Hey, be careful. I cried out to the boy in the wheelchair. The wheelchair kid looked at me and in doing so missed his destination. I took an intake of breath as the wheelchair seemed to fall through the air. The kid was going to die, and it was going to be my fault. However, the kid didn't fall. Instead, he remained situated in the sky quite close to his intended designation. I watched, most likely with my mouth ajar as the kid wheeled himself up onto the flat rock top before giving me a toothy smile. What's the matter? The kid called from the quarter mile in on the rocks. Did you think I was going to fall? Well, I thought you were, I admitted. I'm starting to get the idea that the rules of the world don't apply here. Oh, see, I'm not from here, the kid asked, wheeling over more of the steps before slamming into the land right onto the edge of the neon forest. Welcome. I've been here since my birth. So this is all normal for me, but you seem a little unsure. When were you born? Ah, 30, 40, 50 years, wheelchair kid shrugged. You only look like you're 10. I'm actually 11. So how come you're claiming to be 50? I'm 11, but I've just been here a long time. The wheelchair kid's logic worked for him. I was more of a skeptic, though. Do you live in that town? I do, the wheelchair kid confirmed, looking out to the small, compact village with a slight cusp of disdain. Doesn't seem like you enjoy that place. I don't think anyone would enjoy that place, the kid sighed. I've barely gotten out of the village. I come out the steps, but if I were to get caught going into the forest or going up to Lake Centere... Do you have parents? No, we're a community, the wheelchair kid explained. The kid was itching to move with the wanderlust-type heart I had suffocated for the vast majority of my life. I don't think any of us really relate to each other. It's like that saying, it, it takes a village. We're just a village. But how are you born if you don't have parents? We were just there one day, I guess. So there's no beginning for you, just this. When you say that, it's kind of depressing, the kid sighed. Where are you from? They say this world's almost infinite. I'm not from this world. Then where are you from? That might be hard to explain. But you don't have proof? Wheelchair Kid was putting a heavy lean on the topic, but I appreciated the boy's bravado. I guess not. What's your name? Sidney, and you? Rodney. Huh, we kind of have a pretty similar name. It's probably a good sign then, mister. I smiled, a pretty genuine smile. I didn't feel anything past a bit of humor. I could laugh once in a while, mainly because laughing didn't automatically correspond with deep feeling. Laughing was just a reaction. And while I didn't have any reactions, really, I could form reactions. So what's the name of the town? I inquired, pointing a head to the town across the way. Dahlia Village. Why is it called that? I don't know, Rodney shrugged. I don't do anything important. People don't want to me to do anything important everyone thinks I'm fragile and all that shit you know because I'm in a wheelchair are you fragile of course not Rodney was very adamant about this fact strength seemed important to his identity most likely because he was confined to a wheelchair being perceived as weak must be exhausting as evident by the small stream of anger which came from Rodney upon my question I didn't think you were weak then why did you ask to see what kind of person you are to see how you respond I told him, the reason behind my questioning, in an honest manner. There seemed no point to lie to Rodney at that current moment. The insane, intelligent human knew that you didn't need to fix what was broken. If you'd fall into such a simple question, Rodney, then I know that you were truly what people believed you to be, but you rose and fought against the perception others placed upon you. Only the truly strong can escape a mental trap like that. Yeah, you seem pretty smart, Rodney chuckled. So what are you doing here? If you're from some other world, then... What are you doing in this world? I'm looking for Clark King, I explained. You mean Clark? Rodney looked stunned. I suppose so. I was confused, but didn't want to look out of the loop. Tell me what you know about uh, Clark. He's a myth, a story, a god, a genius, mastermind, ruler, a fable. Rodney spun his wheels, but he didn't move. He looked like he was thinking about Clark. Uh, I don't get why you're looking for him. I'm more so trying to find out information about lavender, I added. Do you know what lavender is? No. Roddy looked rather unnerved, but he was slowly coming around. Should I know what lavender is? I didn't even know until a couple hours ago, so I suppose it naturally, eh, you don't know what it is, either. But why do you want to find Clark? I don't even think he exists. He exists, I sighed. Because this world of yours is the mind of someone named Clark King. But he's just Clark, Rodney laughed. He's just a story. You came into existence because of the birth of a human man, I explained. You're his subconscious. Are you kidding? No. Fuck, oh shit, I shouldn't have said fuck. Rodney cursed himself again for the explicitive slip. I know you're telling the truth. I can feel it, unless you've been brainwashed to believe what you're saying. I don't think you've been brainwashed, but listen, Sydney, you can't say any of this. You can't tell anyone else around here what you told me about Clark, about looking for him or being out of this world. Why? People will probably arrest you or hurt you, maybe kill you. Rodney warned me, his eyes drawn tight as if tired and uncertain. You sound like you don't belong here. You're suspicious. Good to know, kid. Trust me, I still don't get it. This whole experience so far has been like a drug trip, and hell, I still don't know how I got here. I don't get why you're here, with these fucking rocks floating between Neon Forest and Dahlia Town. You mean the Dahlia Steps? That's what you call these weird little asteroids? I looked out, curious at them. How do you stay afloat out there? What do you mean, stay afloat? Well, back in my world, we have a thing called gravity. What the hell is graviday? It's called gravity. What's that? Basically, you're always on the surface of the ground. Oh, well, that doesn't make sense. Clearly, it wouldn't make sense considering you can just walk around this place casually. I chuckled. I'm looking around and finding that places are just floating rocks. Yeah, that's how it's always been, and how it'll always be. That was the point where I would not mention to young Rodney that if the real human Clark King dies, then no doubt this world would cease to exist. At least, that's what I assumed, but Rodney knew Clark and didn't know anything outside of this whack job place. It didn't even seem like Rodney knew anything past the vomit rainbow pine trees and the lake across the way. To dance upon the Dahlia steps for what I assumed was over 50 years must be absolutely painful. Another major question which popped into my mind during the discussion with Rodney was whether or not he played a significant role in Clark King's real life if the neon forest represented Clark King's early childhood. And what did Rodney represent? What were the Dahlia Steps and the Dahlia Village about? So are you going to take me to Dahlia Village, I questioned. I will, as long as you promise not to talk about certain things. Can I talk about Clark and Lavender? Yeah, but don't act weird, Rodney muttered. Just say you're doing a school project or something. Do you have like a, a story of where you came from? Uh, a city down south? I guess that works, Rodney shrugged. Okay, let's go. "'But how do we just go?' I asked, looking out at the slightly levitating steps with wide air between them. Up above, to the far sides and below, was more slabs, but just air. "'Afraid you can't cross the steps, Mr. Gravity?' Rodney asked with a chuckle, still not pronouncing the word gravity in any correct fashion. But gravity didn't exist here. Rodney rolled forward, and on Earth he would have fallen off the cliffside of the floating rock island of Neon Forest, but instead... Rodney rode straight across the air before diving down onto a rock. The wheels of Rodney's chair skidded to the rock's surface, which let up small dust residue, and overturned a small bit of grass which had been growing on the rock's surface. "'Now you try it!' Rodney demanded. His voice was carrying back to where I stood. The sherbet-colored tree shifted in the wind as I finally picked up the speed to run across a small opening. I flew and landed on one of the nearby rocks." I could feel the adrenaline kick into my body, the same kind I had received from ending the life of an infidel, a terrorist, or a parasite, the same motion and energy that I got from blowing up a bridge in a third world country, the same pleasure that I was granted for ending multiple lives all at once, like lighting a strand of Christmas lights and having your eyes light up at once at their sparkling decadence. Come on, Rodney smiled, jumping over to a nearby rock. You seem to get it, Sydney. I followed Rodney as we left the Neon Forest and used the Dahlia steps to make our way down to the town. There were a few times where my jumps missed the intended rock, but I could choose where I landed. I could stand in mid-air while climbing and descending into mid-air as well. I spent a few minutes learning these new mechanics. I wondered if I'd be able to use this successfully while on the main pieces of land around me. The steps didn't overlook anything in particular, although far below I could still sense what seemed to be bursts of lava. A thin haze seemed to separate far distances, as if you got maxed out by how far you could see. Finally, with one last pseudo-jump before climbing a few steps in the air, Rodney and I landed on the outer edge of Dahlia Village. You're getting it, Sydney. Rodney smiled. You didn't think you could do it. I can't believe this is normal for you. Remember, here in Dahlia Village, walking like that is normal for both of us. Rodney glared into me, in a kind way, before wheeling into the village as I trailed him. He was the younger one of the two of us, but I was far less experienced with the subconscious land he deemed normal. Chapter negative three, the idleness of youth. Rodney had seemed to speak of Dahlia Village with slight dislike, as if I had asked about a root canal or an ex-girlfriend. Dahlia Village had been Rodney's culture and way of life for some time. Rodney would be considered an orphan on Earth, but here it truly was a community serving itself and raising itself. First, Rodney and I stopped the store. Apparently currency came in the form of weird rocks, which I had actually seen on the Neon Forest floor. I didn't have any currency on me, but when I thought about those rocks, they formed in my pockets. It was kind of like the bullets. The shop owner, Bat, was curious about my background. I told him I was from some town south of here called Henrietta. I think I heard of that. How do you know Rodney? We've been pen pals, Rodney smiled. He came up for the day. Well, hopefully Rodney hasn't been too much for you, Bat laughed. The boy can be a little bit of a troublemaker. Anyway, this here is the of Village Shop. Not too much here, but take a look. What do you know about Clark? I inquired, and Bat closed his eyes and thought for a second. I'm doing research for school. Clark, Bat repeated. Oh... That's nothing but a children's fable. Well, what's the fable? I asked. Clark's who invented the universe and who made all of us. Lot of hocus pocus, he asked me. Some regard it more as religion. Some like me think of it as a crock of shit. Does lavender mean anything to you? Huh. Bat paused. I feel like I heard that before. Like in a different way. Bat looked to the plant life he had for sale, but there was no lavender among them. (sighs) I'm sorry. I can't recall. No problem, I nodded. Rodney showed me to a local dojo, recreation center, and a gym. There was a lot of kids who ran around in small packs while adults supervised them all. For every three kids in the Dahlia Village, there appeared one adult. I couldn't help but wonder what the purpose here was. Were they images of Clark King's childhood or general life? Was all of this a subconscious way to describe socialization and community? As I had promised Rodney, I did not tell people that I wasn't from their world. I felt slightly honored that Rodney hadn't turned on me or reported my anomaly to the adults of Dahlia Village. As I walked through the streets with Spinning Wheels Rodney, I noticed that the town ran on expectation. Things happened with particular reason around here. There were no surprises. Most likely any surprises in Dahlia Town were bad. There was a forced peace in the air. The kind of sensation where you'd see your ex at the bar and pretend you cared to know what they were doing with a life that you used to partially be in. I wondered deep down whether the town was full of happy faces or happy masks. Granted, Rodney was a clear exception. Did other people behave as he did, a source of life filled with anger towards his caged existence? Maybe Rodney was all alone, and maybe there was significance in meeting him, or at least significance in stirring rebellion against Dahlia Village. Similar to Rodney, nobody knew of Lavender, although everyone was aware of Clark. Clark is a figment of people's imaginations. One of the adults, Grena Grine, muttered to me while kids ran around a large indoor playground, colored yellow and purple, with all sorts of things a child would desire. He's not real. How do you know he's not real? I asked with a slow turn of my head. Because one man, one being didn't create this world, Grena Grine explained. Humans aren't alone here. What do you mean? Grena turned to make sure Rodney wasn't listening. Rodney had left to go get some food. We either live sheltered or under a rock. Grenagreen muttered. You know there are demons in the corner of this world. More and more they make their presence known. I heard of an enslavement camp not too far from here. I've heard of a town where they eat visitors. These are real locations? Of course, you act like you don't know Gignosco. I did not ask Grenagrine about what Gignosco was. However, overall, Grenagrine did not seem particularly interested in Clark. Leaving the large playground, I did mention to Rodney what Gignosco was, and he told me that Gignosco was the name of this world. Where does that name come from? I asked. I don't know, Rodney answered truthfully. It's just been. Another adult, Paolo, felt the opposite of the mansion of when it came to Clark. They say he's an existence of this world. Palo's eyes were wide with thought. Clark is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who split the land up, who gave us so many things. He is the birth of good and bad. The birth of both good and bad? Of course, Palo explained. Clark did not make it easy for someone within Gignosco. You you have to be strong and you have to overcome evil. Evil exists everywhere, sadly, in larger doses than sometimes we expect. Throughout my casual interviewers, I did not explain about Clark King. Merely I posed as a curious, researching storyteller. Acting as a storyteller was easy. Once again, I merely created an alter ego and pretended to have human emotion. I just wanted information for my own sake, not for any of these stories. I've been playing characters since I was five in an effort to remain normal. Rodney showed me his small apartment-like place. Kids lived alone in their own singular floor flats, which were stacked up, and looked on the outside like large homes. Rodney's place was a bit of a mess, although there were the normal things you'd expect from an 11-year-old boy. There was a large television and some kind of hybrid video game device which crossed PlayStation and the early-day Atari. The video games themselves were interesting. I didn't recognize any of the titles or covers of Blood, Flesh and Bone, Core, Fusion fire of blood, flesh, and bone, too dangerous, risky, and the least threatening of them all Detective Cornerstone and the missing artifacts. So you live alone? I felt weird asking such a question, but Rodney shrugged as he wheeled around the place. That's not a bother to me, Rodney watched as I looked at his bookshelf and dining room table that was just fitted with one chair. That's how most people live here. How come you haven't aged? Aged? Rodney questioned. People don't age, we just are. So we will die. Only if they're attacked or killed, Ronnie guessed. Like, I wouldn't just die or age. My body just is until it isn't. Weird. So, people age and die in your world? Absolutely. I never really had to think about age or death. Neither of them had been significant to my life. The only funerals I'd really been to were for my grandparents and a couple random relatives. And I had not cried or been bothered. That seemed natural to me. Whereas many around me would justify death they'd invent afterlives and continuum for the sake of feeling better about rotting corpses in the ground I wasn't an atheist per se i was agnostic agnostic because i didn't care whether there was or there was not life was about the present and was not about planning for an unknowable future wow not that i believe you or anything you don't have to so Are you going to leave Dahlia Village soon? Rodney asked, a flash of curiosity building in his eyes. Of course. What are you going to do? Continue looking for Clark King and Lavender? But Clark doesn't exist. He does. How do you know? Because I am currently in Clark King's subconscious, I whispered. I told you all of this. I just find it hard to believe that I'm living inside some guy's mind. Rodney spat. I mean, come on. You could be a crackhead for all I know. You could be insane. You could be one of those monsters the adults are always talking about. I'm not a monster. This is my first lie to Rodney. I'm a real human being, okay? Calm down. Okay, Rodney muttered. But where are you going to go to find Clark King and Lavender? I don't know. I mean, there seems to be two ways out of this town, I shrugged. I go back to the lonely neon forest and wrestle with some weird terrain animal in a pond, or I go out to that lake but that means you're going to go down Lake Austin Tears Waterfall, Rodney gulped. Why are you gulping? Blade Desert is down there. So what's so scary about Blade Desert? I asked. It doesn't even sound intimidating. It sounds stupid. Besides, there's that ocean right next to the desert, which connects to that big city. I suppose for now that city should be my goal. Cultura City, Rodney whispered. I've never been there, but it's supposed to be the biggest city in all of Gignasco. Good, it'll be like New York. What's that? A couple hours later, I fell asleep on Rodney's couch. There was no sun, stars, or moon. The sky differentiated night and day through the purple blotched pulsation. Deep indigos became common to signify night, night. Well, the day was filled with the soft purples, lilacs, and bruised purple. Like the lack of aging within Dahlia Village, there seemed to be a lack of time within this world. This village itself seemed protected by time. They weren't frozen. But the town wasn't capable of escaping common routine. There was no progression, although neither was there regression, per se. Dahlia Village was stuck in a jarring loop which contained small changes in an otherwise repeatable game. It was not true life for the people of Dahlia Village. Had they chosen this, or was this part of their condition? Had Clark the subconscious, or Clark King been the one to envision this town? And if so, what did it stand for? Perhaps I was thinking too much into this town. But I could not help but feel like there was some deep-rooted significance here. Like the creature who was the miscarriage of his older sister, there was something here. Just because I was unaware of it did not mean it failed to exist. For some reason... I could not accept this place as Gignasco. This place wasn't and couldn't be real, considering I had been transported into the mind of Clark King. If this place was real, then what was it in comparison to Earth? Gignasco was fascination that appeared to take reality, but wasn't there some reality to Gignasco? Because if I died here, then apparently that meant I died in real life. Again, the rabbit hole twisting the situation to a point where by thinking of questions I was giving not answers, but more questions. Rodney was still sleeping when I left the little ground floor apartment. The streets of Dahlia Village were empty, and so I managed to go unbothered as I exited what I assumed was the north of the town. From here, there was a winding path which connected Dahlia Village to Lake Ossentier. The path was thin, barely enough for four people to walk side by side. It was practically a husky sidewalk, which held itself somehow as it continued to escalate into the sky. I could see more parts of Gignosco, although the distance still seemed to be too far to make out anything in particular. I'd been minding my business when I could hear a shout coming from behind me. I turned and could immediately tell that Rodney was speeding up on his wheelchair. His hands were pumping vigorously. It seemed like Rodney was going to fall off the side of the sidewalk. Although, there wasn't such a thing as gravity, so I suppose it didn't matter if Rodney fell. I stopped walking and waited for Rodney to get closer, and finally, a panting Rodney arrived next to me. "'Why did you leave?' Rodney asked with a scathing eye. "'You just got up and left!' "'I don't have time to stay in Dahlia Village,' I argued, looking down at the town with a sigh. "'It's a sweet, nice place, but I have things to do.' So, "'So let me come with you!' "'No, it's not in your best interest.' "'I'm coming with you!' Rodney said once more, wheeling closer to me on the edge of town. There isn't anyone who can stop me. This place is too dangerous for an 11-year-old boy. Don't patronize me, Rodney barked, and I could feel the rage now coming from him. That's been my whole life. People treating me like a child. People treating me differently because of this chair. It's all bullshit, and I don't want to stay the rest of my life in Dahlia Village. There's so much to explore, in Gagnasco. so much to see. You yourself said there was a lot of dangerous things, but I'd rather try and see the world, Rodney countered, knowing that, full well, I wasn't going to really keep him from coming with me. For Rodney, this was an experience to seek Ignosco. For me, this was an advantage in finding Clark King and his information on Lavender. (laughs) ¶¶ Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts created by Steadfast Media Company, check out our website at steadfastmedia.home.blog or join us on Twitter at SteadfastMCO. That's at SteadfastMCO. Until next time.